Either way, we'll start back today in the book of Nehemiah. And um, it has been uh, almost three years now since I have been doing therapy work up with Mr. Hamlet and Life Strategies. And one of the most challenging things about counseling and therapy is getting to root issues. Somebody may come in and they may be, they say, I've got an anger problem. Well, let's talk about anger. And it may take months or even years to get to the real cause of that underlying anger. When I was um, interning and shadowing a therapist, he was meeting with a client who had been coming for a couple of years. And it was going all right. They were doing pretty good. And one day before they left, right before, I mean, got up, was headed toward the door, and they said, oh, and I probably need to tell you about the time that somebody molested me. Right before they walked out the door. Yeah, we might need to talk about that. After a couple of years of therapy. And again, how could that not be the root cause of so many issues? But people don't want to talk about root causes. They don't want to find that one sore spot that really is their problem. They want to address symptoms, but maybe not the source of the disease. And we're like that with doctors, right? We just give us a pill so we don't feel the things we feel, but don't tell us what's really wrong. How many of you don't go to the doctor because you don't want to find out what's wrong? Anybody ever been there, right? Like, oh, I better not go to the doctor because they might tell me this, but I'll take an ibuprofen so that I don't feel the pain. Last for a little while, but the disease is still there. The problem is still there. As we've worked through Nehemiah, we've talked about walls, and we've talked about people and where they live and how they live, and we've talked about these exiles, these folks who had lived in Babylon and then in Persia after Persia overtook Babylon, and they returned to Jerusalem because the Lord stirred their hearts up. And they came and they were involved in the great work of rebuilding the walls, and the walls were rebuilt in 52 days, and everybody had a party. Now what? See, broken down walls weren't the main problem. They had a much deeper problem than broken down walls. And we're going to address part of that today as we work through chapter 9 of Nehemiah. Root causes, the whys, the whys of why we are the way we are. If you would, stand with us. We are going to read Nehemiah chapter 9. And... For whatever reason, that's what we got for Scripture today. I might should have checked that before I keep up here. I can do it this way. I can do it this way. I have ways. Watch this. Why do we stand? We stand out of respect, a conviction, a belief, a trust that these are the very words of God. And we respect Him and we respect them so we stand. Nehemiah chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bonnie, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. 
and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But... After they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey." Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you, that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, And in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Let me pray.
God, who are we to make petition to you in light of all of our sins? Who are we to ask you for mercy? Who are we that you would show us grace when our necks are stiff? Our hearts are hard. Our bellies are fat. And yet you say, come. Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts, convict your people, and if there be those who are here today that do not know you, God, would you draw them? Would you open their eyes? Would you breathe into their nostrils the breath of life? And would you do it, God, so that you get glory in this place today? Holy Spirit, teach us and instruct us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. That's pretty tough action, y'all. That's hard to read. Not because the words are hard to say, but it's like somebody's got a finger pointing right at my heart. Let's work through it here. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So we need to place this in the right time frame for our narrative. Um, Last week we saw that the Israelites had celebrated the Feast of Trumpets, which was a one-day feast, and then the Feast of Booths, which was a seven-day festival that was followed with a solemn assembly on the eighth day. Okay, So the Feast of Booths was from the 14th day of the seventh month until the 22nd day of the month. So this is two days after the close of all that. So we're in close proximity to these festivals. Okay, That's important to understand. Remember, the Israelites were told not to mourn and weep because when they were reading the Scripture for six hours in the public square, they were convicted of their sins and they were mourning and they were weeping And the leaders said, don't mourn or weep. Today's a day of celebration. Go and celebrate. That happened. But now, that time's over. Celebration time's over. Christmas is over. New Year's is over. It's January. And I'm just talking to myself because that's how it feels. I hate January. I hate February. Everything's over and it's just cold. Their celebration time is over and now, guess what? Now they're mourning. Now they're weeping. It's time to mourn and weep. So we see them assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. Now, we hear that a lot. It's kind of become a cliche, you know, fasting and weeping and sackcloth and ashes kind of thing. But I want you to think about what this entails. Now, here are these Israelites who just a couple days prior were celebrating, living in booths, living in these thatched, you know, twig, leaf, branch things, and everybody's having a party, and the kids are like, this is so much fun. And then they show up two days later, and they're wearing sackcloth. Now, what's sackcloth? If you don't know, it's a real thick, scratchy fabric. Kind of looks like a potato sack or something. Of course, I don't know if any of y'all know what a potato sack looks like. I might have to go further there. Uh, Like a rug, okay? It kind of looks like a rug, an old scratchy rug. And they've got it on their bodies. It's not very fashionable, to say the least. Of course, everybody was doing it, so maybe it was fashionable. I don't know. But they did this as a public expression of sorrow. Now, we kind of dress to the occasion. Any of y'all wear some of those goofy Christmas sweaters, right? They got lights on them and reindeer antlers, and sometimes the nose lights up and stuff like that. Um, This is that in reverse. This is a way of saying we're not celebrating. Our attire they're saying, shows what's going on inside of us. Rough, scratchy. This is tenebrae. This is is shadows. This is darkness. So their public expression of sorrow with the sackcloth was an outward expression helped to give a visual picture of their inner condition. They had been fasting, at least for the day. You're like, well, that's not much of a fast. Anybody get real grumpy when you don't have breakfast and then maybe lunch? Huh? Your wife does? (laughs) 
note she's not here. (laughs) So they're fasting at least for while they're there. I get grumpy. Man, if I don't eat, come about 10 o'clock, I'm going to get real upset. So they're, they're not eating. And so they're forsaking food, and they're wearing sackcloth in their assembly, and they have earth on their heads, which could be dirt or ashes. Now, some of you boys are thinking, well, what's wrong with that? That ain't no big deal, right? I dirt my hair all the time. That's not what it's talking about. It's saying that they're literally, what they would do is they would grab handfuls of dirt or ashes and they'd fling them in the air and they would rub them on their head. And again, it's an outward sign of a condition of dirtiness, of grief and of sorrow. And woe is me. Can you just imagine the picture? Just get this great throng, thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands of people, Sackcloth, ashes, mourning, fasting, weeping. What are they mourning about? Well, remember they had spent all that time reading and studying the Scriptures. And as they read, they saw what they weren't doing right. And they saw what they were doing wrong. And they saw that measured against the holiness of God, they weren't even close. And their sins were convicting them. And listen, they were so convicted over their sin, they were weeping and dressing in sackcloth and putting ashes on their head. That's what they were mourning. They were mourning their sinfulness, their lack of holiness. And the Scriptures had exposed that to them. They were sad before and they were told not to mourn, but they have clear understanding now that they have been unfaithful to the Lord, even after observing the feast that they were commanded to keep. And so now they're mourning over their sinfulness. The broken down walls had signified the sad condition of the city of God. Now these public mourners signify the sad condition of the people of God. And just like the wall that was to be repaired, now the hearts and the actions of the people need to be repaired. And that's what we're going to see the rest of this chapter and really the rest of the book. See, the work of the wall was preparation for the work on the people. And this book is not about a wall. This this book is about revival in the people of God. So, we're going to see that as we move on. Uh, Verse 2. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now we saw the Israelites divorce their foreign wives and put away children from those marriages in the end of Ezra, if you remember that. Now these actions here in Nehemiah seem to indicate a more general yet greater step of separation. I mean, they knew it was wrong to intermarry with non-Jews. They knew that. So at the end of Ezra, we saw them say, we'll put away our wives and our children that have come out of those marriages. That's one big giant step. But this is more, hey, let's separate ourselves from the people of the land. It's not just about intermarriages. It's about making themselves different. Making sure that they are distinct from the peoples of the land. Jewish folk were to look different, dress different, have different customs, worship differently. They were to be altogether different from the people who were not God's people. And this seems to say that they're making it a point to be more separate and distinct. And to do so in a way that made them different from all foreigners. And while this was bound to be costly, both socially and financially, it was clearly being done as a sign of their sorrow for being so indistinct in the past. New Testament tells us that we are peculiar people. A peculiar people. These folks had come back from Persia where they were probably blending in pretty good themselves. We saw that in Esther, right? They blended in pretty good. King didn't even know Esther was Jewish until she told him. But now these people were back in Jerusalem, and it seems like they're blending in pretty good there too. So now they're separating themselves. And it says they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. It wasn't just about doing something differently. It was also about saying what had been done sinfully in the past. Now this is tough stuff here. It's one thing to stop doing things, but it's a totally different thing to stand up and say, I have been doing this, or I have done this. Maybe in a relationship. Husband, wife, 
Maybe you're being unfaithful. It's one thing to stop your affair. It's another thing to tell your spouse that you've been doing it. And that's what's going on here. They're not just saying, okay, we'll, we'll be different. They're saying, this is what we've done in the past that has not been different. This, these are the sins that we have committed. They are calling them by name. They're pointing out specifically, we have done this. We have done this. We have done this. Now that is a big blow to your pride. And it definitely does away with any self-righteousness that you might have. To actually confess what you've done wrong. And they did this for what they had done and for what their fathers had done. And they do it in detail in the prayer that follows. The rest of the... After... Verse 3, verse 4... After, after verse 5, the rest of the chapter is a prayer. So let's get there. But they'll, they'll pray this out and they'll do it in detail in that prayer. And they're reminded again of their sins through a familiar source. God's Word, verse 3. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. Now we saw them in the previous passage when they were reading from the Scriptures um, six hours one day that they, they had developed a ravenous appetite for the Word of God. To, stood and listen, to stand and listen for six hours one day, then to come back the next day and study some more, and then day by day through the feast, the seven, eight-day feast, to come back for the public reading of the Word again and again and again. Now it says at this time they stood in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Now to the Jew, a day was 12 hours. The other 12 hours was the night or the evening. So their day was 12 hours. So what's a quarter of the day? You didn't think you'd need math today. Look what I did to you, right? What is one-fourth of 12? Thank you very much. It's three hours. For three hours they stood and had the law of the, of the Lord their God read to them. Three hours. Anybody was squirming while I was reading those 38 verses? Yeah. Confess your sin. I'm just kidding. <laughs> three hours. Let me just say this. When you get into the Word and the Word gets into you, you can't get enough. You start to find reasons to come to the Word, not come up with justification as to why you can't. These people had been brought to a place by the power of the Spirit of God where they desired God's Word, even as it convicted them of their sins, which shows in that after three hours of public word reading, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God for three more hours. That's quite a six hours, isn't it? Now we'll do a couple hours here today and then dinner or lunch or whatever it is, whatever you call it. We'll eat, so we'll be here three, some of us four hours. So hard. Six hours, public reading of the Word, confession and worship. The Word brought them to a place of confession and worship. Three hours of confession and worship. God was doing a work in His people. That's why this was happening. It wasn't because they were righteous, not because they were holy. It's because the Spirit of God was doing something in their midst. Now watch the reaction. Verses 4 and 5. Here's these names. On the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So what we see here are the temple workers, the Levites. Remember way back in Ezra? Ezra was upset because no Levites were coming. So he went back into the town and found some Levites. You see why they need Levites? Levites are doing a lot of stuff. We've, we've brought them up a lot. So here are the temple workers, the Levites, standing on the stairs of the Levites. Now you might remember from last week that Ezra had read from the law on a platform or pulpit with 13 guys standing up there with him. This platform would have stairs leading up to it. Okay, 
And these Levites were probably standing on these stairs leading up to the platform. And they're probably elevating themselves so that they can be heard and seen. And as they stand there, they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And they told the Israelites to stand up and bless the Lord your God. They're leading worship. Verbal worship. Not music worship, but they're leading worship. And encouraging their brothers to bless God here in the midst of their mourning and confession. They're directing their gaze to God in the midst of their grief. Which is a pretty good idea, by the way. And then they start leading in a prayer of corporate remembrance, confession, and worship. And it's a doozy. Takes up the rest of the chapter, and it's like counterparts. Like its counterparts, there's, there's counterpart prayers to this in Daniel 9, and we saw a good one in Ezra 9. Now, I'm not saying they happen at the same time. I'm just saying they're very similar. And what you have in Daniel 9, Ezra 9, and Nehemiah 9 are Jews who are kind of recounting the history of the Jews and showing a common problem. The unfaithfulness of the Jews, and they're showing a common solution, and that's the graciousness of God. So Ezra 9, Daniel 9, Nehemiah 9. I don't know why it worked out that way. If you're a numerologist and you think there's some code in that and that the world's ending tomorrow because of that, hey, whatever floats your boat. I think you're wrong, but... But we'll see in this prayer, we'll see them looking at God. We'll see them looking at their past. We'll see them looking at their sins. And we'll see them looking into the future. And uh, Derek Thomas is a author, preacher, writer, speaker. He divided this prayer into seven sections, which is what we're going to do. I'm going to go with his uh, divisions. I think they're pretty good. First is God is creator. Second, wilderness wanderings. Third, God's compassion. Fourth, confession. Fifth, God's faithfulness. Six, complaint of slavery. And seven, cutting the covenant. I'll explain that when I get there. So first is the first section, which is creator, which is verse, just verse six. So here's this prayer. This prayer is starting. And this is the Levites praying this prayer with and for the people that are there. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Now, remember, they've been reading the law of God, and what's the first book of the law of God? Genesis. He read from Genesis 3 this morning, right? What does Genesis tell us? God created everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So they, this is fresh on their minds. So they're praying this prayer, and the first thing that they do is they acknowledge that God is the Creator. They acknowledge God is the Lord who made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. Now that pretty much covers it, right? This makes God the maker of all things, which makes God the owner of all things. And they say that He preserves all of these things, which means He's not absent or aloof from His creation. Thomas Jefferson and his deist friends would say, God wound everything up like a clock, set it down, walked away and did God's stuff and didn't worry about the clock anymore. And it's not true. He's in the midst of us from the book of Acts. He's not very far from any of us. And He is active in His creation and He is preserving creation. Now those are two giant confessions and understandings. God made it all, and God cares for it all. It is all by Him, and it is all for Him. And if we could but understand these truths and appropriate them into our lives, we would be much better off. And then they say that the host of heaven worships God. All creation is His, and His heavenly beings know Him as Creator and Sustainer, and they worship Him for it, which infers that we should too. Now they launch into an account of Israel's past, and that's going to be 7 through 16, the wilderness wandering part. We've seen Creator, now we're looking at wilderness, wilderness wandering. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous." 
And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of clouds you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Now, let me paint a picture for you, okay? I want to encourage you this morning to be seriously excited about biblical history. 1998, we took a short-term mission trip to Ghana, West Africa. And I was given the assignment of teaching a Bible outline, an outline of biblical history. That was what I was to do when I went over there from Genesis to Revelation. Break it down, kind of outline form, and then stand up and teach it to go from Genesis to Revelation. Well, they told me that that my section, I'd be given three hours. I'm like, okay, all right, with some breaks, not straight through. We weren't holy like these people. Uh, The Africans would have done it, by the way. They'd have done it. They wouldn't have cared. So they said I had three hours. Well, let me tell you a little something about African time. It's different than American time. 11 o'clock means they're going to be there, oh, 1.30-ish, okay? Or 9, yeah, it depends. You just never know. You just never know. So here I am, and I'm all pumped up, ready to go to our first venue. And we wait, and we wait, and we wait. And literally, they're two and a half hours late. So my three-hour session just became a 30-minute session. And I've got to go from Genesis to Revelation in 30 minutes. We did it. (laughs) I don't know how good it was, but we did it. But the reason I'm telling you that is, as I dove into this, and as I prepared for this, and I I did get to present it longer later, because we didn't just do one venue, but I'm going, wow, this is, are you ready? This is one big story. This is all interconnected. Malachi matches up with 2 Chronicles. Job matches up with Zephaniah. Yeah, every sermon in the New Testament, well, he said it, every sermon in the New Testament is a history lesson. Everything that was written down in the Old Testament, Paul would say to the Corinthians, is for your good, for your instruction. And if you don't know how the story fits together, you're going to miss the bigger point. You can get some good life application uh, notes from David and Goliath, but you're probably going to miss a plot because you're going to think that you're David in the story. But the story's not about you. The story is about God. Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think you're going to find what you need in them, but it's they that speak of me. Jesus is a greater David. You're not David. Jesus is the hero of the Old Testament. God gets the glory for all of the story of the Old Testament. Not you. And if you don't know that, if you don't see the big story from Genesis to Malachi that it's about the glory of God and the coming Christ, you miss the whole point. And so now what we're doing here, they're praying through their history. And they start with God choosing Abram. Abram, who was worshiping the moon over here in Ur of the the Chaldeans, and God says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Abraham didn't get a vote there. Abraham didn't say, I'm not real interested. I've got this venture going. It's going really well. That didn't happen, y'all. God interjected Himself into Abram's life. And He said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Take you, your family, and go where I'm going to send you. Listen, we can sing about God being sovereign. Your plans are still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. Faithful forever. 
perfect in love. You are sovereign over us. And that is true. But God is sovereign over every molecule of the universe. Ultimately sovereign. The uncaused cause of everything else. And they start their recounting their history by saying, You, God, chose Abram and brought him up out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him that. God changed his name. Anybody walk up and ever change your name? I, my, I had an uncle who decided he wanted to call me Booger growing up. And he did. And he still does. Hey, Booger. Hey. What am I going to say? God shows up and He chooses Abraham and He changes His name to Abraham. He chooses Abram, changes His name to Abraham. He said, you found that His heart was faithful before you. You, you told Him that you were going to give Him the land of the Canaanite, Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Jebusite, Gershite. He made a covenant with Him. And then they skip over a large portion of history. And then all of a sudden, Abraham's descendants are in Egypt. And they're leaving Egypt. And again, if you don't know the story, you miss a bunch of stuff there. A bunch of acts of sovereignty. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good type of stuff. But the Israelites are leaving Egypt out of their slavery there. And God parts the Red Sea. Now listen, we say that. God parted the Red Sea. And they walked through on dry ground. That's a neat story. No, that's a miracle of God that happened in history. And we've got to understand this. You kept your promise for your righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, heard the cry of the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants. Now listen to this. And all his servants and all the people of the land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And listen, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. Now that was over a thousand years ago. And people were still talking about the God who parted the Red Sea and delivered these people, the Jews, out of their slavery. God made a name for Himself a thousand years ago as it is to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land, cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. You led them with a pillar of cloud in the day, a pillar of fire by night. You gave them laws, right rules, true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made them known. Your holy, your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and laws by Moses, your servant. He gave them bread from heaven. And again, we we're like, yeah, manna. No, He gave them bread from heaven. They woke up every day and there's bread on the ground. And again, we're like, oh, that's a neat story. Can you imagine? For 40 years, God gave them bread from heaven. He gave them water out of a rock. That's a neat story. And it's true, it is. But this is the same God that we worship today. And we forget the story. We think that our part of the story is the only part of the story. And you know what happens when that happens? We get arrogant. We think that God exists for us. But the opposite is true. We exist for Him. Bread. From heaven, water, out of the rock. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you have sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously. Can I get an amen? amen? And stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Well, why did they why did they do that? Because they forgot. And he told them they were going to forget. When you go into the land that I'm promising to give you, it's going to be nice. I don't want to get too I think that's Let's look at 17 through 25. They refused... This is the God's compassion part of the prayer. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. That part of the story is they were going to go to the promised land. They're like, no, it's too hard out here. We're just going to go back to Egypt. But you're a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. Again, know the story. 
You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of their land, that they might do with them as they would." And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. I want you to see the pattern here. They refused to obey. They stiffened their necks. They were going to go back to Egypt, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. They made a golden calf and worshipped it and said, this is the God that brought us up out of Egypt. And you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. God could have folded up the tent, went back to heaven, and done something different. But He didn't. The pillar of cloud still led them by day. The pillar of fire still led them by night. At any time, the presence of God could have disappeared because they were sinning. And a holy God can't stand sin in His presence. So He could have folded up the tent any time and went back home. But for 40 years, He didn't withhold manna from their mouth. He gave them water for their thirst. They, their clothes didn't wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their feet didn't swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. They took possession of kings and their lands. You multiplied their children. The descendants went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, with kings and peoples. They captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possessions of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and said, Praise God from whom every blessing flows. No. They ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. God's compassion. He never left them. He never forsook them. He tarried with them. Now, 26 through 31. Confession. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the people of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. God tarries with them. God blesses them. God encourages them. And they turn and they sin and they turn and they sin. And they cry for help and God blesses them and they turn and they sin. And they cry for help and God blesses them and they turn and they sin. And they cry out to God for help and God blesses them. Ad nauseum. Verse 32, God's faithfulness. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. 
upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. They're crying out, having already painted a picture of a God who has remained faithful through these thousand plus years. And they're saying, God, would you continue to be faithful to us? And he has every right to say no. But he made a covenant with them. He made a covenant with Abram way back when. And that covenant said, when you break the covenant, I'll pay the penalty and you'll still be my people. So they appeal to God's faithfulness. And then 33 through 37 is a complaint of slavery. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Root causes. Because of our sins. We're in slavery. Yeah, we're in the land. The walls are built. Here we are. We're in slavery. The produce of this land goes to the king of Persia. We got, we got to pay taxes to him. Remember, they were all broke, barring against their houses and selling their kids because they couldn't pay their taxes? Because of their because of the sins of their father and their fathers and their fathers and their fathers before them. And this cycle of sin and grace and sin and grace and sin and grace, sin and provision, sin and blessing continued and continued to this day. And they knew it. And they said, it's because of our sins that we're here. Will you show us compassion? And I think it's less of a question and more of a statement. We are sinners and you are a faithful God. So we call out to you to be faithful in the midst of our sinfulness. Finally, cutting the covenant. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So now the people are responding to the faithfulness of God. They're remembering His covenant with Abram way back when, when God said, if the stars ever fall from the sky, this covenant will be broken. Which is His way of saying, it's never going to happen. I'm never going to break my covenant with you. So what they're doing now is they are cutting the covenant again. And that's the literal wording. They would cut a covenant. Some of y'all have heard this Many times I'm going to tell it again. What God did with Abram when he made this covenant with them, he said, bring me some animals. He would cut them in half. They would cut the animals in half when they would cut a covenant to make a solemn binding agreement between two parties. And they would take the animals, cut them in half. They'd put them on opposite sides of a ditch. And they'd let the blood from the slain animals run down into the ditch. And then they, each party would walk through the blood path. And that was their way of saying, if I ever break this covenant, let what happened to these animals, let this blood be my blood that is spilled. Covenants were not made lightly. And God made this covenant with Abram, whom he would rename Abraham shortly. But here's the thing. Abram didn't walk the blood path. He was in a deep sleep. And it says a flaming torch in a smoking oven walked through the blood path. That was God. God, in the form of a flaming torch and a smoking oven, walked through the blood path as His way of saying, when you break this covenant, I will pay the penalty for your sins. And so now they say, we realize what you have done, God. We realize the covenant you have made with us that we have broken time and time and time and time again and we call out for grace again and we want to recut this covenant. We want to do 
our part. Which is what? It's obedience. That's our part. We don't earn our salvation. We don't say the right prayer, walk the right aisle, get baptized right, comb our hair right, take a bath. We just simply say, God, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe that we are who you say we are. And we will do what you've called us to do. So they're saying we're re-upping God. We're re-cutting this covenant. And we want to do our part. We are sorry for our sins. And we're glad for your faithfulness and your grace. So let's put it in writing. Next week we'll see what that covenant looks like on writing, not on paper. But for today we turn our attention to how this passage applies to us today. Five easy application points. And they start with G. This is a straight G application. Grief, God, guilt, grace, gratefulness. Grief, God, guilt, grace, gratefulness. Grief. What's the application for us? Grief. Grief for sin. The Word of God brings an awareness of sin. What do you do with it? It should grieve us that we are so prone to sin. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Does it grieve you? Or do you shrug? Yeah, yeah. I did it again. I'll probably do it again later. And I'll probably do it again tomorrow. When the Word of God is active in your life, you will grieve over your sin. And if you're not grieving over your sin, the Lord disciplines those whom He loves. If there is no discipline, you are not a son. And I don't say that lightly. I don't say that haphazardly, flippantly. You ain't no Christian. I'm saying search yourself. If there's no grief over your sin, you are not saved. But if you are sinning and it grieves you, praise God for that grief. Let the Word of God point out your shortcomings and your sins and grieve over them. But here's the thing, second point. God, in the midst of your sins, in the midst of your struggles, in the midst of you being disobedient day after day, there is God! And God is sovereign. And God is good. And God is gracious. And God has made a way to deal with those sins. You know what? You don't have a way to deal with those sins. All you can do with those sins are cast them on God and say, look at my sins. But God has made a way. Listen to me. Please listen to me. God saves people. God in His big story that we would do well to know has always made a way of escape for His people. God chose Abram. And Scripture says that He chose us before the foundation of the world to be righteous and to give us the righteousness of His Son. So we look to God when we see our sins. And they are many. The Apostle John would say, if you say you have no sin, you make Him a liar. And the truth is not in you. What do we do with our sins? We take them to God because God sovereignly saves people. Third application point is guilt. Here's the reality for all of us. Every single one of us. We are depraved. We talk about total depravity. Listen to me. If you are not a believer today, you have no power to save yourself. You are dead in your sins and your transgressions. If you are saved, Don said it this morning, you're a saved sinner. And sin still dwells in your flesh. You will fight sin the rest of your life until you see Jesus face to face. If we don't understand our true guilt before God, if we don't understand that we are totally depraved in and of ourselves, we will never, ever, ever make our way to God. Never. 
If you have not come to a point in your life where you realize, I cannot save myself, you will never come to God. You are depraved. I am depraved. We are depraved. Go team! Team depravity! That's us. What can we do? Nothing! Grief over our sin we bring to God and we see the depth of our depravity. We see that we are truly guilty. And here's the good news. God gives us grace. Grace! Not justice. Not even mercy. God gives us grace. Justice is when you get what you deserve. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. And grace is when you get what you don't deserve. In the midst of our grief, in the midst of our guilt and depravity, God extends grace to sinners. God as the initiator. God as the chooser. Extends grace. And He breathes life into our dead bodies. New life. And we are born again into a living hope that cannot be snatched away from us because God did it. If you could save yourself, you could unsave yourself. But if God saves you, ain't nothing you can do about that, y'all. And that's good news. That's what grace is. God as initiator continues to show grace. He continues to pursue us just like He did the Israelites. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night will never depart from us. You say, well, I ain't never seen it. That's metaphorical. I'm being metaphorical here. God in His grace chose you. God in His grace sustained you. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far and grace shall lead me home. In the midst of my depravity, in the midst of my grief, there is a God who extends grace to me. Just like He did these Israelites. So what's our response? The last G. Grief, God, guilt, grace. We are grateful. What's the application point there? The application point is be grateful. If you're saved today, if you're born again today, be grateful. Worship Him. Re-up the covenant. Remember the covenant and say, I want to do my part empowered by Your Spirit. I want to recount Your glorious, wondrous deeds from Genesis to now. We can even go further than that. We can go into the future. I've read the end of the book and we win. And I can praise God for that. So I'm grateful for a God who initiated everything, who will bring everything to a culmination to the praise of His glory, and I get to respond to Him in worship, in confession, in repentance, time and time and time. Again, I get to recut the covenant every day and say, God, today I want to die to myself, take up my cross and follow You. And when I stumble, when I sin, I will confess it. I will grieve over it. And I will realize here's the good news there is no more guilt in it. Grace says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I'm grateful. So what did chapter 9 of Nehemiah just do for us? Preach the gospel to us. The good news of the gospel of the grace of God that you are a sinner. You are depraved. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And God today seeks to extend His grace to you, His initiating, saving, sustaining grace. And He says, if you will come and trust me, believe in me, follow me, I'll take all your sins away. I'll take all your sins away. And I'll place you in Christ where nobody can pluck you out of my hand. And I'll give you a future and a hope and a place to bring all your sins time and time and time again. And we're reminded every week that the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, 
has dealt with the guilt of my sin so that I don't have to carry it anymore. Free at last. Free at last. We need to remember where we've come from. We need to have a vision of where we're going so that we can live today in the grace of God, celebrating His grace, confessing our sins, and rejoicing all the way to heaven until we see Him face to face. We are sinful. He is gracious. He is faithful. We are faithless. And to that we say, praise God. Let me pray. God, thank you for your story that you've shared with us. Not only shared with us, God, you've invited us into your story. And again, God, I would pray and ask this morning, if there are those here who do not know you, prick their conscience, draw them, convict them of their sins, and show them the grace that is found in the finished work of Jesus Christ who carried our sins to the cross and paid the penalty for those sins in his body so that that penalty would be taken away, never to be brought up again. And now, as we confessed before we started, He ascended into heaven where He is seated at your right hand, where He ever lives to make intercession for His people. God, help us to be a people who put our faith in that Christ, in a historical Christ whose story has been told since the dawn of time and whose story will be shouted and sung throughout eternity. Save souls, convict us, God. Draw us and remind us of your faithfulness that you might get glory and honor through our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll just stand and receive a benediction. Short one today. This benediction is not about you. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, to Him be honor and glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. You are free to go. Stay and eat with us if you can.